great, great pleasure and privilege to have uh, Ben Chi and Shafer Shlita. Finally, we got him down here. And he thinks he's, this is it. No, he's going to have more and more and more and more. That's right. With no further ado, Kavanaugh Harav. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Singer. Certainly, uh, the first time that I, the first time I came here, actually, was with my brother-in-law's, um, this mic doesn't work, does it work? You have to talk right into it. So you have this great little lapel mic that you could walk around with. Anyway, I'll, while he does this, I'll, I'll keep my little uh, piece going here. The first time I came to PTI was for my brother-in-law's uh, of and I have to tell you, even though I had heard about it before and I had uh, seen some of the success, just the atmosphere, the avira, uh, the accomplishments is a tremendous, tremendous thing. And I was actually Zilka this year to be at the dinner as well. And the uh, singer of Gordonheim, I have to tell you, my uh, my hat is off because it is a tremendous, tremendous thing you're accomplishing. It's a tremendous tremendous thing. The Mishtatim, those who were involved in it, it's a it's a beautiful thing to see people growing, to see people involved. Can I this is off the record folks, this has nothing to do with the shoes and I'm not taking this doesn't count any of my time. Can I do this little piece? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, thank you. As you know, uh, if you know either the shoes.com is a program I'm involved with for Torah. And as you know, typically most uh, Jewish organizations are What's that word we look for? Um, broke? Is that the word broke? Yeah. So anyway, we're broke. Baruch Anyway, with that being said, I get an email. Yechiel, who's the administrator, sends me an email. There's a certain fellow in Holland who wants to donate 1,800 euro, which is about $2,600. However, he wants our bank account number to wire transfer. Now, listen, you know, come on, Internet, the bank account number, you know. So right away, Yechiel sends me an email. What do we do? I said, listen, you never know. Be polite. Tell him we have to, you know, want to speak to him on the phone and listen to it. Okay. So he calls up the fellow, and it turns out the guy is really, he knows all the shmuzim, he knows the vernacular, he knows everything. So he still sends him back an email. He's a hush of a Jew who's uh, obviously into it. So anyway, the money comes in, in the bank account. I ask Yechiel, give me the phone number. He gives me the phone number, and I ask him, when can I call him? 11 o'clock. So Wednesday, 11 o'clock, I call Holland. Shalom Aleichem, how are you? And I didn't even know that they were from Jews in Holland. Very nice. Back and forth. After a few minutes, he says, of course you know I'm not Jewish. I said, huh? I, no, I'm, I'm a B'nai Noah. Oh. <laughs> I see. <clears throat> yeah, but here's the problem. Not only does he know all the sprach, the words, he's got, he's got it down pat. He's been a B'nai Noah for 15 years. He has a full art scroll collection. Oh, Rav Shimon Schwab, I love his safe on feel. Oh, yeah. Oh, and Rav Vitorsky, excellent. Yeah, very. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Rabbi Franz takes, I listen to Rabbi Twitter. The whole deal, he's got the whole thing. He only dominates, by the way, when he's in Yerushalayim, he only dominates in the great synagogue. He prefers that shul to the other shul. <laughs> you know, I, the first thing I had after that conversation was the Shiloh, which postage do I add? The Rambam Paskin, a guy who's also a Torah, is Chayim I mean, it's not, not a light thing. What, you know, how do I <clears throat> break it to him? Anyway, why am I sharing this with you? The reason why is because here is a person who I believe personifies what I call Ikhvan Mashiach. In other words, the time of Mashiach, right before Mashiach comes, and certainly as it's coming closer, there's such a clarity of understanding that a Gentile will yearn, will hunger for Torah. And we see that in our days. We see, by the way, he's not the first B'nai Noah who is involved in the Shmuz. We have a guy showed up at the Shmuz in Brooklyn with his, uh, on a Shidduch date, with his girlfriend who's also B'nai Noah. 
And there's a Matthias out there of Goyim who want, who mivakshim, who learn, who study, because as it becomes more and more clear, there's a ruach in the world, and everyone is mivakish dat Hashem. And the reason why I share that with you is because it is, to me, a tremendous, it's such a chizik to come and see people who are involved in learning, who want to grow in real, serious, but Baruch Hashem, Jews. And usually, you know, you know, usually you get people who can talk about learning. You know, you'll have classes and lectures about learning, but every single share that's in learning, real in, it's a tremendous thing. So that's just, you know, sharing just my... Sent, and that's made sure. That's going to count any time. Fine, it was just, okay, it was a commercial break. Okay. What I would like to share with you this morning is actually a schmooze on anger management. Um, if you have the Chazal in front of you, if you don't, um, I have some extra sheets if anyone doesn't have. Um, there's more over here. These are colors. Same deal, but please take them carefully. You can pass them down this way. If anyone wants also to the shoes views, which is, well, whatever, we'll do that. Okay, good. Let's not do this one less. Okay, but that's not good. For this, if you have this sheet, you're good. Actually, don't even bother that because it'll be a distraction. Okay. Everyone ready? Okay. The Gemara that we're going to discuss today actually deals with an interesting event. Many of you are familiar with the event, but what I'd like to do is carefully analyze exactly the way Chazal bring it down and the particular lesson that they learn from it. So let's begin. Tanur Abana the Bryce tells us, A man should always be humble as Hillel. And don't be makbid, don't be tough, don't be hard, don't be, don't be a captain, don't be demanding like Shammai. So what we're going to now see is an illustration, an example of humility. A man should be humble like Hillel, and this is the personification. Maisa, Yomar tells us an event, two people, they were making a wager. Two people were betting one against the other, and the issue with that they were betting over was who could get Hillel to lose his temper. Who would get Hillel angry? Now, the Yomar tells us that they actually bet 400 zuz. A ksuba is 200 zuz. A ksuba was supposed to be the amount that a woman could live on for a year, so they were betting in those days what was considered a very, very large sum of money. They took it quite seriously, and then one of them said, I'm going to be the one to get Hillel to be angry. He waited until Shabbos, the Friday, he waited specifically for when Hillel was actually bathing. So he went and passed right by Hillel's house. Is there a guy, a Hillel? Around here, is there somebody called Hillel around here? And it's not the Yatsil Across, so when Hillel heard someone calling him, he got dressed up, went out to meet him. Amlo Bni, my son, Matamavakish, what can I do for you? Amalo Shayla Yeshlisho. This man said, I have a question to ask. Shal Bni Shal, ask my son. Why is it that the heads of the Babylonians are flat? Now obviously this was not an appropriate question to ask Hillel on Erev Shabbos, call him out of the bath to come out to greet you. Why the head of the Babylonian flat is not a relevant issue. I'm a low Hillel's response, Bini, my son, Sheila Gedola Shalta asked a wonderful question. The answer is, because their midwives are not very learned when they have aid the baby coming out, they're negligent, that's the answer. The man did not succeed. 
He went away and came back a little bit later. Round two. Stood at the door. Mikan Hillel. Is there a, a dude? Is there a guy called Hillel around here? And the Satsif Yasser Lakrosso. Hillel got dressed, came out to greet him. Bnei Matamavakish, my son. What is it they request? Sheila Yish Lishal. I have a question. Please, Shal Bnei Shal, ask. Why is it that the eyes of the Tarmudim are slanted? Another rather <coughs> philosophical, deep, relevant question. Amlo Bni, Hillel's response. My son, you've asked a very great question. Because they live amongst the sand to protect them. Their eyes grow in a slant and <coughs> more difficult for the sand to get in there. Round two, the man didn't succeed. He waited another certain amount of time. Chazavim, he returned and said, Mikan Hillel, Mikan Hillel, there's somebody called Hillel around here? A third time, Yatsa the Krosso, Hillel got dressed, came out to meet him. Amlo Bini Matamavakesh, what are you requesting? Amlo Shalali Yerushalishal, I have a question. Shal Bini Shal, Nibnavra Gleim Shal Afrikim Rechavas, why is it that the Afrikim's feet are wide? A third, Klotzkasha. He asked a very great question. By the way, did it tell me him? Yes, these kind of questions? I taught high school for many years. Many years I taught high school. If a guy would ask me one of these. Okay. Why is it that their feet are wide? You asked a very great question. Because they live amongst the watery areas and having wide feet supports them and allows them better access. Amalo, at which point the man recognized that he's in trouble. 400 zoos on the line, three attempts, strike three. He says as follows, Lisho. I have many questions to ask on the but I'm afraid to ask them because I'm afraid you're going to get angry. In the Satsev Yashav Lufanov, he'll further cloak himself and sat in front of him and said, All the questions you have to ask, please ask them. Amalo, the man said, Are you Hillel, that they call you a Nasi, the Israel? Amalo, yes. Amalo, the man said, If you are he, there should be no more like you in Israel. Amalo, said, My son, why are you saying that? The man answers, because I lost 400 zoos because of you. Amalo, Hillel answered back, guard your tongue. Be very careful with your words. It is worthy for Hillel. You should lose 400 zoos and another 400 zoos. And Hillel, the great Hillel, shouldn't be mocked. And that's the end of the Gemara. Now, before we ask any questions on the Gemara, let's analyze the Gemara the way the Masha sets it up. The Masha explains that this man knew very, very well exactly what he was doing. He was not wagering lightly, and he was not just haphazard in what he was doing. Every step was geared and focused on getting Hillel angry. Number one, he comes on Erev Shabbos. If you've been married, if you've been married more than one week, you know that the house could be calm, everything could be wonderful, but right around lichpenching, right around candlelighting time, there's an anxiety level, there's a tension, there's a pressure, there's a real difference in the attitudes, and you know that it's a lot, it's a very wise person who's guarded in that time, because a lot of fights, unfortunately, happen then. 
He waits in their Shabbos, specifically when Hillel's in the bathhouse, and he stands there outside and calls him out. It's not just that Hillel's bathing, not just that he has to be interrupted, but he calls him out. And listen to the expression. Is there somebody, uh, Hillel, is there a Hillel around here? Hillel was the Nasi Yisrael. He was the most powerful man politically. He was the Rabban Shalkol B'nai Agol. At that point, he was really the Rosh Hashivah. He was the greatest Rebbe of the generation. His name was known to everyone. Is there somebody called Hillel? He waits for Hillel to come out. And then he asks him, Klotzkash number one, Klotzkash number two, number three. And the final attempt is, I have many questions to ask you, but I'm afraid you're going to get angry. Haven't I proven to you already that I'm an even-tempered guy? Haven't I shown you already that I'm not going to get, to get angry? A chutzpah? You think you're going to get me angry? Says the Moshe, that was the last step. And he failed. He failed. And this is the Gemara. And that part is very nice, and that part is very understandable. But here's the question. If you or I were learning this Gemara, and I think we'd say this is a beautiful example of anger management. If you wanted the classic example of working on costs, you wanted the quintessential example of a man who got rid of his temper, this is it. But interestingly enough, that's not what the Gemara learns from that. The Gemara says, A man should always be as humble as Hillel. This is the example of humility. But the problem is, this is a poor example. If I were writing this Gemara, I would say a man should always be even-tempered, never lose your temper. Yet the Gemara uses this as the prime example of teaching us humility, and the question is, why is the Gemara using this as the example of humility, when clearly it's the example of anger management, of working on cost? And I think when we delve into this very interesting point, I think we'll get a much better understanding of the meter of humility, the meter of cost, and how the two work together. And that's what I'd like to work on this morning. But to do that, as a word of introduction, because I'll tell us that even a safe Torah needs a model. There are some Sifri Torah that are read from every Monday and Thursday. Some Sifri Torah only read from on Shabbos. There are some Sifri Torah that are only read on the Yom Tovs. There are sometimes a Sifri Torah that will <coughs> sit in the Aaron Kodesh for years, literally years on end and won't be used. And I'll say that <coughs> even a Sifri Torah needs a mazel because not every Sifri Torah gets used. In that same vein, I think it's true that there are certain mitzvahs that are much more popular than others. It's very hard to imagine going through a sukkah without an arba minyan. Very hard to imagine going through Pesach without eating masa. Many, many mitzvahs are extremely well known, extremely popular, and they get a lot of mileage. However, there are some mitzvahs that don't get anywhere near that exposure, and there are certain very, very lonely mitzvahs that are almost forgotten, one of them is interesting enough, the mitzvah say, midir and according to most of the morning mitzvahs, to work on one's midos. The Rambam paskin this way, and if you look in the Mishaburi, he brings it down, that there is a full mitzvah say to perfect your character traits. Now the word there is working, improving, changing your character traits, and that is a full mitzvah say, midir according to most Rishonim. And interestingly enough, it's not that well known, and I'm afraid it's not even that well practiced. And I think the reason for it really is twofold. Number one, I think the common attitude is, listen, it's a good idea to have midos. I'm not denying it, but this is who I am. This is my nature. 
I wish I were a calm, easy-going guy. I wish that way. But I'm hot-tempered. I'm quick. I'm just, that's me. A leopard can't change his spots. And I think that's the first problem. But my friends, I want to focus on something. And the mitzvah is not to have good midos. We all, oftentimes we make a mistake. You ever hear, you talk about a certain guy who's got great midos, great midos. The mitzvah is not to have great midos because if you were born with a very, very humble spirit, very, very calm, very generous, that's nice, but that doesn't mean you did anything. That's your nature, that's your temperament. You were born with that. The mitzvah is to go from point A to point B, to start as a bombastic, arrogant buffoon and make yourself humble, to go from fiercely hot-tempered to being calm. I knew a guy in yeshiva who was a real Balgaiva. And I met him 20 years later. You would not call him the most humble guy in the world, but vastly different. And that was a man who changed. The mitzvah say is to change your very nature and your very essence. And again, the first problem is that people typically take the attitude of, this is me and I can't change. Obviously, this is a full mitzvah say, midaraisa, we can change. So, once we get first past the first hurdle, that is recognizing that obviously Chazal <coughs> feel that we can change because they didn't eradicate this mitzvah or say it's a mistake in some way, the next problem is much more severe. And that is, okay, how do I do it? Watch. Wake up in the morning and I feel that I am God's gift to humanity. Didn't ask for this feeling. Didn't wish for it. But I just feel I'm very, very big and very, very important and the world was created for me. Now, I didn't wish this to be. I didn't ask for this, but that's who I am. That's how I feel. Now what? Don't feel that way. Oh, huh. never thought of it. Oh, okay. But I feel this way. Meaning, how are you going to change your very essence, your very temperament, your very nature, and whether it's being generous, whether it's being even-tempered, whether it's being humble, all of the various character traits are contained within this mitzvah. And the problem is, excuse me, how do we change, how do we work on it? So what I'd like to share with you today is a little bit of an eye glimpse into the Midah of Kaf, and then we'll spend a few minutes on exactly changing this, working on this. Now keep in mind that there are very detailed descriptions of phonem, ways, techniques, systems that are brought in the Bali Musa, that are brought in the various Musas for him. And what I'd like to do is share with you just a little bit of, uh, is that word for me? Thank you very much, that's very sweet. Three of them, we got three of them. Oh, excellent. There's one here, one here. Send the forward, I'll drink this one first, that one second. <coughs> this is four years of voice lessons. I blew my voice out in uh, <coughs> teaching high school. Four years of voice lessons. <coughs> anyway. Okay, so let's begin. Let's deal with something called cops. Number one, anger is not logical. Anger is not something that's dictated by the brain. It's not something that's controlled by the brain. Anger is something very different. And let me give you a very classic example. Your boss calls you into the office, and he reads you the riot act. He literally starts ripping you to shreds, and then he says some very, very nasty, cutting remarks. You leave that office, and you get into your car, you start driving, and the tape in your brain plays every single word over and over, again and again. It's an hour drive. It's a nachamal, nachamal. Each word, each line, by the time you get to your house, you're furious. And you park your car, and you barely get in your house. You run up the stairs, you slam the door, and you take your fist, and you smash it 
right into your bedroom door, breaking it. That is done. If you were to smash your boss in the jaw, we could debate whether that's intelligent or not. But breaking your closet door is dumb. Your boss doesn't care about it. He doesn't even know about it. You didn't gain anything by it. But that's exactly the point. Anger and cast is not guided by intellect, not subject to intellect, and sure ain't smart. It's something that stems from a different part of the human. Psychologists like to call it emotions, and even that is very, very off. If you'd like to know where cast comes from, it's from the Nefesh Bahami, from the physical soul of man, the part that Hashem planted in the human to count the balance of Nefesh Asifli, the complete Neshama is made up of two parts. The Nefesh Bahami has the kas, the Nida of anger in it. It is not contained within the brain per se of the human. It's a part of the human, again, loosely called emotions, but even that poorly, poorly defines it. It's something that you have to think of in a different sense. And the reason why it's very important to think of it in a different way than intellect is because when you want to start working on it, you have to recognize that it's not a logical progression, not a thought-out cognitive process of anger. And the first lesson in working on anger is something I'd like to share with you. If you don't know this lesson by now, this is a very essential lesson. You may want to take notes about this. When my daughter was three years old and... It was a third birthday party. I learned how to be an Abba. Sheer ended at 12.30. The party was at 1.30. My wife had set up everything. All that was left for me was to blow up 100 balloons. I ended up coming home. About 40 minutes ago, I take balloon number one. By about six or seven, I'm getting woozy. By about 10, I'm ready to pass out. And that's when I learned the key lesson, and that is before you blow up the balloons, stretch them. Write that down. Take that to important note. Stretch them. Because when you stretch them, they're easy to blow up. You don't hyperventilate. You don't get dizzy and woozy. But the balloon, once it's stretched, is much easier to blow up. And the relevance of that, my friends, I believe is very real. And I'll share with you what that is. The meter called cast, called anger, starts much like a tight balloon. We're all at a certain point in a young age where that balloon is pretty tight. What happens is, at some point, something happens that gets you angry. And you get angry, the balloon sort of stretches out. And then you lose your temper and say whatever you say, and then you come back to normal. Then another sort of event happens, and you get angry, and the balloon stretches. Another sort of thing happens, and you get angrier still, and angrier still. And each time you get angry, and depending on how angry you get and how long you stay angry, you stretch that balloon out such that the next time it's easier to get as angry as quickly you'll get as angry as the last time or even quicker and that balloon stretches out. If you were to measure cost, if you were to measure anger based on frequency, how often you get angry, based on intensity, how intense that emotion is, and duration, how long it stays, you'll find that the same stimuli, the same impetus will cause reaction A but once you got that angry, it takes less to get you that angry, lesser stimuli will get you that upset because the media has stretched and stretched and stretched. On the reverse side, if you allow a certain amount of time to pass and you don't get angry, the media comes in a little bit. If normally your frequency of getting angry was once a week and you spend a few weeks not getting angry, interestingly enough, the balloon comes back further. 
a few more weeks back further, back further, so that the same stimuli won't get you as angry, the anger won't be as intense, and it won't last as long because the balloon has come down. And if you look at anger like that balloon that either as you get angry stretches or when you learn to control your temper comes in, what you quickly find is that the need that changes based on use. You use it and it becomes easier to get there. Stop using it and it becomes easier and easier not to lose your temper. It becomes harder to get, get you to lose your temper. And in that sense, and I'd say the easiest media in the world to work on is cops. If you'd like to work on your anger, all you got to do is don't get angry. Simple. Just don't get angry and the balloon shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and you've cured your anger problem. Of course, that's rather simplistic because that's the problem. I keep getting kicked off. I get angry and I yell and I scream and I say whatever and that's my problem. But this point shouldn't be missed. Understanding that the media works like that balloon expanding and contracting is the key to understanding eventually how one solves this problem. But the problem on a practical level is, okay, let's assume that's the system. How do I work it out that I actually don't get angry? How do you not get ticked? How do you not lose your temper? So let's study for a minute the what I call the anatomy of a rage. And let's sort of break it down to its component parts. And I think we'll get an interesting illustration of actually how it works. Somebody says something certain line and I get ticked. What's the, I can't believe the guy said that. I can't believe he said that. Oh, I, that guy said that to me after everything I've done for him, everything I've, I've helped him out, and he said that to me. And now it starts building. Whether it be the tape in my mind, and whether it be the words I say, it starts building and building and building until eventually it's a volcano ready to erupt. But you see, my friends, it begins at a very, very small little tick. He said something, and I heard it, and I got upset. But at that point, it's very easy to stop. It's a little bit ticked. Anybody can control tick. Anybody can hold that back. And the problem is that it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And when it gets to that volcano stage, then a gibor chayel, shimshon a gibor, could not control it. And that, my friends, is one of the very important episodes to know about Kass. The Orthodox says that the world of psychology is fundamentally flawed in their misconception. You go to psychologists, what do they say to do? Vent it. Vent your anger. Vent it. Speak to people. Yell at the person. Put up a punching bag and punch the person. Vent your anger. The Orthodox says very clearly, silence is mevatel kas, undoes kas. A quiet voice is what undoes it, and quite the opposite. If you're going to raise your voice, and if you're going to speak out in your anger, what's going to happen is you're going to increase it and increase it and increase it. And you ever notice that? You ever notice that when you're going to tell that guy off, you start out kind of angry. But by the time you're done, you're not kind of angry. You're furious. And especially if you resist, especially if you defend it. And by the time you're done, that anger has grown from you know, kind of angry, but really, really angry. And that is a very important understanding, that it always begins as a little bit ticked, but it's when it starts playing in my brain, and I start reviewing it, and reviewing it, and reviewing it, or worse yet, I speak it out, speak it out, and that's when it goes from a little bit ticked to being very, very angry, and at that point, even a gibor can't control it. And this, my friends, is a great use sold for controlling costs. I'll share with you how I learned this one the hard way. 
As you see, I have my wireless mic here. I, I discovered this little trick when I was in high school here. I, um, again, I mentioned I blew my voice out at some point, so I, before voice lessons, I would try to teach with a wireless mic. At a certain point, we had discussed cast, we discussed anger, and, uh, now these are good guys, reasonably into learning, but there's typical high school guys, they'll do things from time to time. And at some point in sheer, when I'm, my, the loudspeaker's in the back over there, my wireless mic is over here, and I'm speaking, and, uh, somebody over there does something he shouldn't be doing. I don't know what it was, and I kind of looked at him. And I kind of looked at him, and I was a little upset, because it was inappropriate. The guy right in front of me says, Rebbe, did you hear that? Who was? The speaker. Who was? When you were angry, the speaker was like, static. A few minutes later, maybe an hour later, two hours later, somebody else did something, throw a spitball, whatever they did, I looked. And I said, Rebbe, the speaker. And every time I got ticked, every time I got just a little bit angry, you could hear static from the speaker. Now, like, to this day, I don't know if it was the aura, or maybe I just was rubbing and my lapel rubbed against the mic, but bottom line is, every time I felt just a little bit of anger, there was static from the speaker, and it solved my anger problems. You know why? Because this is exactly the episode. When you get ticked, when somebody says something, somebody does something, or maybe you did it yourself, and you're just a little bit angry, it's very, very simple to cure that level of anger. Why? Because all you need then is self-awareness. All you need then is to check it, hold it, and then it's cured. And if you would like to do a tremendous amount of work on anger, I have one simple Musa technique that I guarantee will get you very far. For the next two weeks, take an index card, keep it in your pocket. When you feel that first sense of a little bit tick, take out that index card, put a mark on it. And I almost guarantee you that action alone will stop you because you're aware, you're conscious, and it stops there. The reason we get, lose our temper is because it starts there, but doesn't stop there. It grows and it grows and it builds and it builds until it's that af v'chema. And when it gets to that stage, forget about it. And if everyone's sitting there so, yeah, this is not a big deal, cost doesn't really apply to me, you're not married. <laughs> or you're lying. <clears throat> because uh, been there, done that, uh, sorry folks, um, it applies. And if you're not sure, think back. And this is a very, very big deal needed to work on for all interpersonal relationships, especially for marriage, your kids. It is a big, big deal. Number one, this you so being conscious, being aware, checking it at, at the early point is a huge step forward and can do a tremendous amount of work in terms of curing the meter. However, there are many times when that's not enough. Many times when somebody says something really inappropriate, really wrong, and again, whether it be your sense of you were hurt, and, or even if you're correct in that, there are many times when there's something gnawing at you and you just can't stop it. And you can't stop it because it bugs you and it bothers you and you want to tell the voice to stop, but it doesn't and it plays over and over. And you know that you're in danger because you know if you could stop it here, you would never lose your temper. But you also know I can't make it go away. How do you deal with that? And that, I believe, is the second part of working on cops. The first step is self-awareness, which really would, in theory, solve all of the issues. And the second part is a little bit more difficult. And to share with you that, I'd like to share with you the following observation. This happens to almost every young married woman within the first year or two of her marriage. She'll be walking on the street with her husband, maybe it's Shabbos, They'll be walking, imagine for a moment, they're walking on this side of the street, 
And then from the other side of the street, she hears the following. You are ugly, you're a jerk, and I can't believe you're still around. And she's like, what a rude guy. She looks over. She sees a husband turns his head. And her husband walks right across the street, right up to the guy and gives him a big hug. Hey, buddy, I was in this in high school. Oh, it's guy talk. Oh. The Jacob girls don't talk that way, by the way. That guy talk. Hey, ugly. Yeah, oh, yeah, buddy. <laughs> okay. Now, what is that an illustration of? I'm walking down the street and I hear the words ugly. I turn and look. I then interpret who said it, what he meant, why he said it, and then I react. You see, there's a nanosecond of interpretation. It's not, in the anatomy of a rage, it's not like the stimuli happens and then it starts building. There's a nanosecond before of interpretation. Who said it? Why did he say it? Where is it said? And what does it mean? Where I interpret that and really understand what it's about. In the case of the fellow across the street, it doesn't get me angry at all because it's not an insult. In the case of a guy who really means it, it's a vastly different event. And understanding this point, that there's a hair breadth of time for interpretation, is the next step in terms of working on cops. I'll share with you what I mean. Roshiva, I mean, Chavetz Chaim Talmud, Roshiva, when I say Roshiva, I mean, Herbert Leibowitz, the Roshiva of Chavetz Chaim Yeshivas. Roshiva would always tell us as follows. Imagine the following. Imagine a guy steps on your toes. Or whatever he does, it bothers you. You get angry. You get upset. Justify yourself. Same scene, but imagine for a minute the following. Ten minutes before, you just found out that you won the lotto. Ten million dollars! You're ecstatic. Same guy steps on your toe in the same way. What's your reaction? I love you, Reggie. You're amazing. You're hugging the guy. This is the guy you would have punched an hour ago for the same event, and now you're hugging him. Why? Because I'm happy. I'm phenomenally happy. I got the greatest news ever. This is unbelievable. Nothing bothers me. My friends, the most difficult thing to work on, but the cure for anger, is being happy. Why is it the most difficult thing to work on? Because it's the most elusive of human emotions. In the pursuit of happiness, this country was founded with that as one of the principles. The reason why the human race is in hot pursuit of happiness, but doesn't find it, is because they're sorely lacking an understanding of why they're here. When a human being understands why Hashem created him, when I understand my purpose, my mission, when I understand I'm put on this earth to grow, to accomplish, and I actually do that, I'm phenomenally rich. I'm ecstatically happy. When you get up out of bed in the morning and you say, wow, I have a day to grow, to accomplish, and you actually do that, you're happy. And if you're happy, it's a lot harder to get ticked a lot harder to get angry. The bumps and tumbles of busy life don't affect you anywhere near as difficult. And the reality is that the first way to work on interpretations is to be happy. However, again, it's the most difficult way because it requires years and years of working and thinking and really, really getting your life on track. But that is the first step in working on really, really properly interpreting. There's a second step, which is also not so easy, folks. second step is as follows. When you were a little boy, and I'm sure they taught you how to take a compliment. Right? At some point, your mother told you, you have to smile and say, thank you, and just 
that's how you take a compliment. It's very rare that they teach you how to take an insult. But the Chobos of Allah says, I'll tell you how to take an insult. A guy says something to you, and he's correct. He's justified in what he says. He says the Chobos of Allah, this is the way you take the insult. You humble yourself in front of your Creator. And thank Hashem. Thank Hashem Thank Hashem who revealed a little bit of the many things you have wrong and understand that these words are not spoken by this person. He is but the shliach. He is but bringing me the message from Hashem. When you understand this, you have a vastly different approach to life and vastly different approach to the way people speak to us. But when you view this guy as the shliach, as the speaker, Imagine, where's the speaker here, folks? Where is the speaker? It's up in the ceiling. It's not even a good example. But imagine I had my big high school speaker in the back there, and I start insulting. You're a good. And he'd walk over to the speaker and punch a boom right in the subwoofer. I'll get him. That's the loudspeaker. You hit the person who's speaking to you, maybe, but not the loudspeaker. But that's exactly the point. If I understand that this world is not run hefker, it's not like there's no creator who orchestrates and maintains this world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created and runs every facet of this world. No single action occurs without Hashem being directly involved. When you understand that, you understand that this man is but a pawn, a representative at best. Those words are to be heard by me, said by Hashem. You don't punch the loudspeaker. You don't get angry at him. You don't even... It's irrelevant. And this is the second way to work on interpretation. And you might note that it's also very, very difficult. Because if way number one to work on interpretation is being happy, that's a lifetime of work. And way number two of working on interpretation is a real solid sense of betachon, that's also a lifetime of work. So in theory, I understand how these will help me work on my anger, but in practicality, it's a very long road. However, system number three is a lot more easy to attain and a lot more a lot more accessible. Let me share with you what that is. There was a gentleman, I think it was the late 70s, he was walking on the Lower East Side, and he called to his son across the street, and he asked his son to come here. And for some reason, that he couldn't believe, the Galador of Moshe Feinstein walks over to him and says, yes, what can I do for you? And it took the man like a good long time to piece together the events. You see, his son his 13-year-old son was across the street, and he called out, Moshe, Moshe, come here. The Galador of Moshe Feinstein heard the words, Moshe, come here, came across the street, yes, what can I do for you? And then the man understood the towering humility of Rav Moshe Feinstein. And I want to focus on this event. You know who I am. My name is Rav Moshe Feinstein. My word goes out across the universe. Every single Allah, chutzpah, you call me? Me to come across the street to you? You could, that wasn't Ramosha. Did you call the guy? I'm not such a big shot. I'm not I'm a mortal flesh and blood. I know more Torah. But you need something. What can I do for you? You see, when you're humble, life is a very different experience. If you are a proud, overbearing, bombastic individual, I guarantee you're going to suffer a lot. You see, when you take the ego and puff it up real big, it's very, very sensitive. Number one, I never, ever get the cover I deserve. You know who I am? You know how I am? You know big and self-important and mighty. 
I never get the honor due to me. And I'm always getting my toes stepped on and my honor and people always saying things to slight me. And if you are puffed up, you find an awful lot of trouble in life. The flip side, and when you have a sense of humility, what am I? Who am I? How many times have I done things just like that myself? What happens is the rough and tumble of life, the various lines that people say, the events that happen, it's not that they don't bother you. They don't even, they don't even register. My friends, I believe that that's exactly shot in this Gemara. Would you like to know why the Gemara says that a man should be as humble as Hillel? Because this was not a test of anger. This was not a demonstration of Hillel's uh, not having cast. It was a huge demonstration of his humility. And let's relearn the Gemara just the way the Marshal says. And every one of these was a test of Hillel's Anova. And it comes to the doorstep when Arab Shams. I'm busy, man. Don't you understand? I spend my whole week learning, teaching, worrying about this cause. This is the ten minutes I have for myself. It's Arab Shams. You're rushing me? And he comes to the doorstep and he says, Is there a dude, a Hillel dude? You don't even know my name? I'm the Nasi Yisrael, the Gadol Ador. You don't even know who I am? And he waits there for me to come out. For me to come out to you, Chutzpanyak. All right, I'll walk out. What do you want? Sheila Gadola. I have a great question to ask. Chutzpah, do you know my Talmidim, Talmidim, Talmidim wait for weeks, maybe months to ask me a question? You think you're going to take my time to ask a question? All right, what is the question? Why are the Babylonians head flat? You nar. You're wasting my time, but not once, not twice, three times, and the last step. I have many, many questions to ask, but I'm afraid I'm going to get you angry. Get me angry? Haven't I shown that not only am I great, not only am I nothing, but I'm the most humble man of all. I'm so humble that nobody could get me angry. Every one of these was a test of the humility of Hilo. The anger, of course, is the manifestation but that's the great Yisod that Gemara is sharing with us. And that is that there's a direct, 100% direct correlation between anger and humility. Because if you have gaiva, if you have arrogance in your heart, invariably you will be hurt, you'll be damaged, your ego will be bruised, kisseder, and you will have no choice but to be angry. And as a matter of fact, and if you'd like to know something interesting, according to Rishonim, the real definition of anger is a sense of frustration of power. The Rishonim explained that whenever you see the words Hashem has charon af, Hashem is anger, what that means, of course, is that Hashem acts with that midah, and Hashem, for our benefit, works with, with that as a midah, but the Rishonim explained that, of course, Hashem doesn't get angry, because, listen to this line, why should Hashem get angry? If Hashem was angry, we just cease that person from existing, and stop that element that bothered him from being there, Hashem keeps every particle of physicality in existence. If Hashem were ever angry, Hashem would just have it cease. No more. But you hear the point? Why should Hashem get angry? Because Hashem is kol yochal. Hashem is all-powerful. I get angry because I'm powerless. A chutzpah. You did that against me. You violated my will. I am powerless. And it's that frustration of being checked, that frustration of feeling powerless, that causes cost, that causes anger. I once had an interesting conversation with Rabbi Gudas Rashid in Rochester. I said, we were talking with Wellis, a certain person, I said, he's a Balgaiva. Rabbi Gudas said, uh-uh, he's not. I said, how does Rashid know? He said, very simple. How often does he get into fights with people? I said, not that often. Not a Balgaiva. 
I said, why? He said, because if he were really arrogant, he couldn't help but get into fights all the time. Why? Because a big, important person like me gets angry and gets ticked off because everyone's always bruising my very, very exposed ego. Everyone's always doing things that causes me to get angry. And the solution, the third antidote to really, really working on this thing called kas is to gain a perspective of humility and to gain a perspective of ma'ani, mi'ani, what can I really do, how much power do I really have. And once you get that really, really clear, what happens is life is very different. When people do things to you, it doesn't bother you the same way. It doesn't hit you the same way. It doesn't, by the way, the most practical example of anger in our society is what, folks? No? Everybody? Come on. Road rage, right? I love watching. Road rage. You know, you cut the... I love watching that thing. Now, just for the record, when I get cut off and I get one of those, you know, about to get angry at the person, I say to myself the following words. Idiot, didn't she just do that yesterday to somebody else? Oh, that's right. And you ever notice when somebody's like backing out carelessly and is about to hit you, and then I say to myself, but didn't I just do that last? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And what you start realizing is that it's not just the other guy who does dumb things. I, too, am human, and I, too, do these things, but there's very, very selective memory. When you mess up, who are you going to pay for it? You know, understand, I'm me. But that's exactly the point. When you gain a perspective of humility, when you gain a perspective of who am I anyway, how much do I understand, how much do I know, can I really, really control things, it changes vastly your entire experience called life. And from that perspective, very, very little bothers you. The very, very little stimuli that gets you ticked off, and the solution is very, very easily brought. That's three. I got one more. But this one is so easy that it's almost laughable. Here it is. I am a Talmud of Yeshiva. I also learned not just, hopefully, even learning, I learned the Derach HaChayim from my Rebbe. One of the greatest lessons that I learned from my Rebbe was as follows. It began at some point when I was just married, and uh, my wife decided that the apartment needed painting. Now, we were in Kolo, and you know, remember I mentioned that the organization that I run is broke? Well, it happened to be that when we first got married, we were also coincidentally broke. Okay, my wife decided that the apartment needed painting. She was right. We didn't really have money for a painter. So I had a friend of mine who was single. He said, hey, why don't we do it together? I had never painted before, but I relied on his expertise. We bought the paint. We got there, and I found out that he had no expertise. And so there we are with the cans of paints, the brushes, and the apartment, and like, how do you do this? I don't know. Let's get to work. I don't know. Anyway, we sort of, sort of muddled, whatever, back and forth. Finally, we got to the radiator. Now, this radiator, the apartment was probably built on maybe in the 18, 1820s, maybe. I don't know when it was built. But that radiator had to be painted 30, 40 times with a peeling, cracking paint. I don't know who said it first, but he said it, I said it. How do you paint a radiator? I don't know. How do you paint a radiator? I don't know. And we didn't think much about it. And this would have passed as just an event I never would have even been aware of. But apparently my wife was in the kitchen, and she heard that part of the conversation. How do you paint a radiator? Don't ask me how this happened, but we were by the Roshiva's house, and we were talking about something. At a certain point, I think the Rebbe asked me something else, so I walked out. My wife was the Rebbe and some, with, with the Roshiva, and somehow this story came out about how do you paint a radiator. When I walked back in the room, the Roshiva was laughing. <laughs> how do you paint a radiator? <laughs> how do you paint a radiator? I guess he saw the image of me with the speckled you know, paint all over me and sitting there with the paint. How do you paint a radiator? <clears throat> okay. 
Do you know how many times I heard that, how do you paint the radiator? Initially, when I was in yeshiva, it was just, you know, every month or two, the yeshiva would remind me. But as I moved away, I was in Rochester, I would come back once a year. Every time I would come, how do you paint the radiator? How do you paint the radiator? She would start laughing. I brought my son with his bar mitzvah for a bracha to the yeshiva. <laughs> my son was like, this is a double stall. You're ready. And he's laughing. Radiator, I don't even get the joke. But what's, what's, what's going on? Margo Bafumi. Over and over, I heard my Rebbe say these words on a regular basis. You must have a sense of humor. You must maintain a sense of humor. You must use a sense of humor. And the Roshiva would say this over and over and over. If you do not have a sense of humor, you will be broken by life. Because invariably, life has its moments, its ups, its downs. And if you do not use a sense of humor, you will be broken. And I could be made on this fact. And the Roshiva is as serious as anyone you could imagine. The man is a man of principle who will stand up against the whole world. But he always has a smile, and always a almost jovial manner, always with this sort of light approach. And this approach, Yeshiva taught us, was the episode for being a successful human being. And the reality is that there are many, many situations that if you make a light-hearted, almost joke of it, passes like it was nothing, but if you don't, it is a very, very difficult moment in life. And you have to practice this. If you have a good sense of humor, or if you don't, you have to practice using a sense of humor. You have to practice a sort of lighthearted approach to things. You really, really should practice it, certainly in a marriage, certainly with your children, certainly with the boss or employees. But the real key to it, by the way, my friends, is to learn to laugh at yourself. Because when you learn to laugh at yourself, you recognize, you know something? Who am I anyway? How many times I really get it so right? And I mess up. And you learn that when you stub your toe, when you bang your shin, when you blew it, and you really did blow it, you learn to laugh at yourself, and it just somehow dissipates the self-anger, dissipates the disappointment, and you go on in life, and you're a very different person. The fourth method of working on interpretation is developing, practicing, and using a sense of humor. When that stimuli happens, when that barb is shot right at me, do I react to it is largely based on this. If I have a sense of humor, hey, I've done dumb things like that all the time. And not really a big deal. You laugh it off and you go on. If you don't, you're in potentially grave, grave danger. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from Hillel. That lesson is that anger has a real anatomy to it. If you want to work on this midah, number one, you have to understand it works like a balloon. Like a balloon, meaning when you get angry to this point, it's now so much easier for you to get angry to that point again. And if you get angry to this point, then it's easier the next time. And as that media expands and expands in terms of the frequency, the intensity, and the duration, the same stimuli will bring you to a greater point because it's now much easier. The balloon is stretched. The way to cure that media is to allow the balloon to come back in, come back in by not using it by not getting angry. After a few weeks, a few months of either not getting angry at all or not getting that angry, the media tends to tighten. And then that same stimuli that a month ago, a year ago, would have gotten you furious just doesn't have anywhere near the same reaction. That's in theory. In practicality, how do you do it? The first step is to be aware that anatomy, there's an anatomy to that rage. There's steps in the progression. Step number one, the fellow said the line, the event happened, and I'm ticked. Anyone, 
anyone, if aware at that moment, could stop it because it's just a little bit of anger. <clears throat> the danger comes in when it builds and it builds, whether it be because I speak it out, whether it be because in my own mind I review it, I review it, and I bring in many, many aids and many, many supporting <clears throat> logics to support my anger. That's when it builds and then it gets to an afbahema, gets to the volcano erupting. At that point, no one can stop it. The <clears throat> difficult work is how do you stop from the point that you got ticked and how do you stop it? So many times it's a simple solution, having an index card, just putting a mark. But there are difficult times when it's not such a simple thing. And that's when these four techniques, I believe, come in very handy. Technique number one is a general life technique, and that is to be happy. Being happy is based on knowing why I'm here and living my life in accordance and do that. If you're growing and learning, and I mean really growing and learning, if you're working on the shear and you're gaining real skills, if you have a different perception of life, you have a different dominant, a different avodah Hashem, you're a different human being, you will be happy because you're fulfilling the reason why you were created. You're in balance, you're in sync, you're not going to get angry easily, and generally you're going to be much happier. That's number one. And number two is also a long-term project. That's having a real sense of who runs the world. When I understand and fundamentally feel that Hashem is completely, intimately involved in my life every day, all day, from the time I get up in the morning till the time I go to sleep at night, that guy didn't say the line. He's a shliach. He's a subwoofer. I'm not punching the loudspeaker. He's but a representative, and I'm listening to the words that come from Hashem, and I'm asking myself, what does Hashem want me to hear? But again, that's very, very difficult. The third is much more applicable. The third is to understand the relationship between kas and gaiva, between humility and not getting angry, and that we see directly from Hillel. What the Gemara is telling us is, this man personified another. Why? Because if you're a humble person, nothing hits you, nothing bothers you. Who am I anyway? I'm not such a plush person that you're hurting my ego. I'm not such an important person that you're insulting me. Who am I anyway? And every step of this Gemara proves one more step in the Anova, the humility of Hillel, because Anova and anger are directly related. Arrogance will automatically cause you to be angry, and humility automatically will cause you to be humble. But the fourth is the easiest way to work on this. And the fourth is to take a light-hearted approach, to be happy, to work and maintain a sense of humor. Not because I'm a light-headed guy, not because I don't take life seriously, quite the opposite. Exactly because I take life seriously, I understand how dangerous it is to lose my temper. I understand how many times I'll say things that are really, really hurtful, things that I regret dramatically afterwards. And goofa because I understand life, I take an approach of using a sense of humor, and I make light of situations. I learn to laugh at myself, and that is one of the great techniques to working on cast. Cast is that balloon. It grows and shrinks, but you've got to allow it to shrink. And the way to do it is by working on these four. One motivation, because, my friends, when you really work on this, I'm sure you're all working on these kind of things already, but when you start, start really working on this, you're going to find it's a very, very difficult challenge because, in theory, understanding it is easy, but in practical lamites, it requires an awful lot of diligence. So I'd like to offer you just a little motivation to work on anger. And here it is. The story is told that a belligerent samurai once approached the Zen master and asked him the following question. Excuse my nibble pair. And he said, tell me, master, what is hell? The Zen master looked at him and said, I 
should waste my time with a slithering idiot like you? Which point the summer reaches for his scabbard. Furious red face. I should kill you for that remark. The demethodon said, that's hell. Let me explain to you. You ever see a picture of a guy when he's angry? You ever see a picture of a guy when he's punched in the stomach? Tell me the difference between the two. It's not so easy to tell the difference, because if you'll note, when a guy's angry, the face is... When a guy's punched in the stomach... And what you quickly understand is that being angry is no fun. But when I say no fun, I mean it's really, really displeasurable. I mean, you could be sitting down to the most delicious steak in the world. You could be enjoying the greatest activity in the world, but you're angry and it usurps that entire experience. There's nothing left. What I'm experiencing right then is very, very displeasurable. It's a Gemara Psachim that says that if you would like to have no life, if you have no life, would you like to have no life? Make sure that you have a fierce temper. Because the person who has a fierce temper is in lo chayim, has no life. Why? Because I'm angry and I'm angry and this one said that and that one said I'm furious and I'm constantly, constantly getting angry. And by the way, if you don't work on the Mida, then invariably things are going to get you upset, the Mida is going to grow, the balloon's going to stretch, and you'll find your temper gets worse and worse and worse. And if not at 30, maybe at 50 or 70, you have a fierce temper and life ceases to be fun. So forget the fact that you're going to say many things that you regret. Forget the fact that you're going to damage people in a way that you wish you hadn't. Your own self-interest. If you'd like to enjoy this world, forget all now, but if you want to enjoy this world, it is a very wise idea to work on humidos, specifically humility, specifically cas. The Gros says that the reason we're here, Tikkun Amidos, is the reason. It's the focal point of everything. That's how a person is Dovek to Hashem. That's how a person becomes that Kli that's able to be close to Hashem. Obviously, it's a key and essential part of growth. Let me close with one last step. And that last step is almost a stira, almost a direct contradiction to everything I've said up to now. And that stira comes from this very Gemara. This man makes a bet with his buddy. Can you get Hitler to be angry? He goes through the whole scenario, three attempts. <clears throat> Finally says the words. Um, I have many questions asked. I'm afraid he's going to get you angry. <clears throat> Doesn't win. Loses the bet. Done. Interesting enough, then he says the words, Are you Hillel? Yes. <clears throat> if so, there should be no more like you in the classroom. Why do you say that? Because of you, I lost 400 zoos. Be careful with your words. Guard Rukhukha. It could die, and it's very worthy that you should lose 400 zoos and another 400 zoos that the great Hillel should not lose his temper. It's worthy for you to lose a lot of money rather than Hillel. Hillel the Nasi should lose his temper. The Gemara is showing us a demonstration of humility. I believe the Gemara just struck out, because that don't sound very humble at all. Hillel the Nasi should not get angry. It's worthy for you to lose 400 zoos and another 400 zoos rather than me, the Nasi, get angry does not sound very humble. And my friends, I want to spend just a moment on understanding this Mida, because I believe the fundamentally mis, most misunderstood character trait of all is humility. If you ask someone to define for you the Mida, ask them to define arrogance, I almost guarantee you'll get a lot of words about, around, da, 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 da. very few people can define it. However, let me share with you one fundamental concept. <clears throat> If you look at yourself like a worthless slime, if you feel of yourself that you are the lowest of the lowest, 
and you have no worth whatsoever, that is not humility. Not only is it not healthy, there's no shyness to another. Would you like to know what another, what humility is? And join me for the following muscle. Imagine we're at a large work site. And in the center of the work site is a very large crane. This crane is lifting heavy boulders back and forth, back and forth as they excavate the foundation. And the operator of this crane is Joe. Joe's this paunchy kind of guy, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And you walk over to Joe and think, Joe, look at you, man. 50 pounds overweight and chain smoking. You gotta get to the gym. You gotta work out. You gotta do something, Joe. Joe looks at you and goes, what? Me work out? You know what I do all day? All day long, I lift heavy boulders back and forth, back. I don't need the gym. I'm working out all day. Joe, that's the crane. That's not you. My friends, this is a huge solo. I am a Ben Odom. I was created in the image of Hashem. When I open my mouth, that's an Odom speaking. When I move my hands, that's Odom speaking. The entire world was worthy to be created for that. That's the crane. I'm that little guy inside who tells the arms to move, tell the legs to move. You see, I didn't create the fingers, the hands, the legs. I don't know how to weave the 100 billion neurons of the brain sort of put those cells together. I'm just that little occupant of this body put into this, but at the end of the day, it's a mighty powerful crane. It's an Odom. You know what an Odom is? You know what the effect man has on the world? Man's words, man's action, it's an Odom. And I'm that little tiny guy inside the crane moving those big, powerful levers. That is humility. Godless to Odom, the greatness of man means understanding your Hillel Anossi. You're Moshe Rabbeinu. You stand up to the entire world. You break the luchos without Hashem's permission. You take the holiest object ever created and you smash them. And then Hashem says, Yashikov, you did good, Moshe. Good decision. What do you mean, good decision? No one told Moshe to break the luchos. It's worse than taking a safe Torah and torching it. It's like taking the base of Mikdash and torching it. The holiest object ever created and he smashes it. I'm like, it's not yours. Give it back to him. No, doesn't ask. Breaks it. Because I'm the man... This was the shlich was given to me. My decision is to break it. That a godl, a huge, huge man who was the most humble human being who ever existed. Because humility means understanding I'm an Adam with all of the power, with all of the effect entitled thereby, but I'm just that little crane operator inside. That, I believe, is exactly what Hillel was manifesting, and that, I believe, is the proper measure the first of grant us the wisdom and the capacity and ability to put this into practice. If anyone has questions after, please come over here. I want to thank uh, Rav Ben Sheehan Schaefer Schlichter and hope to see him more often, Mr. Shem, and, and get involved in our yeshiva, not about 